Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts the black effect presents family therapy and i'm your host elliot connie Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Celebrity Book Club. that knocking at the door it's all your friends you filthy whore your husband's gone and we've got books and a bottle of wine to kill it's hollywood it's books it's gossip i'm shook it's memoirs it's martinis it's studio 54 it's celebrity book club come read it while it's hot celebrity book club tell your secrets we won't talk celebrity book club no boys are allowed celebrity book club Club. Buzz me in, I brought the Cuervo. Hey, best, hey, friend. best friend! Hey, one of my dearest, oldest friends. Oh, darling, I haven't seen you in ages. I haven't seen you since you rented that tough little college at San Moritz in the spring of 1968, and we went climbing every day. And of course you couldn't, because you had lost your ankle in a terrible accident. <laughs> Remind me, darling, was that when I was married to Dr. Albert Bercosi, one of the finest ankle doctors in all of Nice? You were married to the doctor, but of course you were having an affair with this terrible Egyptian artist, one of the shortest men I've oh. ever seen, who, of course, drowned in a terrible sinking. Darling, he was short, but his bank account wasn't short. And our lovemaking was splendid for the first two years. Um, okay. Okay, so we're talking in crazy voices. It's a super theater camp over here today. <laughs> and yeah, strap into your Shea lounge from the 20s because it's about to get really theater camp. Uh, but we're talking this because we read... Actually, this is maybe my new favorite book. Uh, yeah, I think so. Even though we randomly might have read two different two books. Different books. So this book They're is, both our new favorite books. Uh, this is Peggy Guggenheim's memoir. And... Yes, honey, that Guggenheim. Yes, the museum, you know it. It's called Out of This Century, Confessions of an Art Addict. So, okay, here's the thing. You read Confessions of an Art Addict. I read Out of This Century. Because I realized halfway through, did you get to the part where she kind of explains what happened? She goes, in 1959, at the suggestion of Nicholas Bentley, the English editor and illustrator, I condensed out of this century into fewer than 100 pages and added material about my life during the intervening period. As Confessions of an Art Addict, it was published in 1960 by André Deutsch in London and the Macmillan Company in New York. She goes, so I seem to have written the first book as an uninhibited woman, and the second one as a lady who was trying to establish her place in the history of modern art. Mm. And she had just gone through where she was reading all these reviews where basically everyone was just like, she was an absolute slut and a whore and a <laughs> yeah. 
and she lived her life with absolutely zero principle, just like the art she purports to like. Because she was a big proponent of like of surrealist modern art, of modern art, which was really bold at the time. Absolutely bold. I mean, where she basically discovered Jackson Pollock. Though he disagrees, and we'll get into that. So the book you read had a lot of the first half removed, which is what I spent most of my time reading, which was all about her, you know, various affairs, and she was constantly sleeping with married men, and like, and then also being married, and like having affairs, and like sleeping with Duchamp, and then sleeping with Samuel Beckett, and sleeping with um, Yves Tanguy, and just like all of the artists at the time. And in my book, she definitely is talking about sleeping with Samuel Beckett, but it's a little more, she'll, you know, brief it over and then, you know, more talk about the Biennale and then collectors. In Out of This Century and in sort of in Stephen's version, this is very like Taylor's version. So just like in Stephen's <laughs> version, she's, she's giving you the full play-by-play. She's just like, and then darling, like, Dorothy's husband couldn't know that I was sleeping with Max Ernst, so I slipped him a key while we were at a cafe in Lisbon. And she's giving you, like, the blow-by-blow of, like, every time she has sex with every single person. What's crazy also before we realize this is that, like, I was like, wait, she already is giving me the blow-by-blow, and it's completely insane. Like, even in this abridged version, she's just like, well, and then, darling, he had the most wonderful lovemaking style, but he left me for an ugly, ugly nurse who I detested, (laughs) and I caught them bare-naked on the floor in Luxembourg. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, I'm... And then when you told me, I was like, oh, damn, she's, like, even going more into the fucking of Duchamp. No, and it's like, there's something very, the OC, the original OC about this book, (laughs) where it's like, everyone's always walking into each other's Paris apartments, or just like hotel rooms at the Plaza Athene, and she's always just like staying at a friend's villa in Montparnasse for six weeks, because they were in the South recovering from a terrible illness, and everyone's always lending each other their summer homes, and their winter homes, and then walking in each other with each other's wives that they've been estranged <laughs> with for six years, but are still technically married to because they needed a visa, darling. It was the war. I will say, though, yes, but that it's the OC, but that's also just like all shows, Kramer stuff. We're just like you're walking in and like yes, everyone has okay, keys. True. And it's, Call it's me Joe in and other shows. <laughs> other shows. Joey and Chandler are so the Becky Guggenheim. <laughs> okay. Uh, petition for a show to actually show what it's really like to go Thank to you. people's houses. No show ever has someone outside being like, hey, I'm outside. I want to see that more yes, in TV shows. Realism where you're knocking, where you're buzzing, you're texting. You're texting. Ugh, we need so much more realism. Okay, so I have to admit something that I learned. But actually, okay. that honestly, this is why we read the book, because you learn things. I thought Piggy Guggenheim like owned the Guggenheim. <laughs> like, own, like, well, <laughs> yeah, owned the museum. Too, honestly, no. Okay. <laughs> well, but then I was like thinking about it because like when you walk by the museum. It says the Solomon. Museum, it says Solomon. Oh, it says yes. it's on the museum in that kind of art deco font. But I just assumed that, okay, it does say Solomon all Guggenheim, but like she was in there and like doing stuff. I assumed that she was absolutely in there <laughs> in the sort in the of past. in the conch shell sort of swirl. Geary, who is that made that? Lloyd Wright? No, okay. So to just jump ahead before we like get into the sex, like at the end of Confessions of an Art Addict, um, the more art abridged version, she goes like all the way the fuck off on Frank Lloyd Wright and says that she thinks the Guggenheim was like such a bad design. And then she's like, luckily he died, darling. Like <laughs> <laughs> everyone dies in this book. Everyone dies. And he was like fighting with the curator. And she's like, she thinks the, you know, the up and downs, you know, the classic circular of the Guggenheim is really bad for seeing art and it was really hard for all of the art handlers and the lighting. I, I will I will say this. So the Guggenheim famously it has like galleries that are off the main spiral, but this actual spiral portion is not is like very whatever and it is just like what do you put in the spiral? Right. Like I do kind of agree with her on that because then it's like either you have to do these long murals that are like so whatever and then it's like where are you putting the explanatory text or they're really using the, they're over relying on the pillars. And it's just like, and of course, a curved wall. Darling, it's hard to hang a painting on. Although, exactly. when she did have that, like, 
one of her galleries, maybe it's the Guggenheim Jeune in London. There mm. was, I feel like there was a room where she had like this crazy curved wall for to hang surrealist paintings that there's pictures of in the book. Well, I think she she is into like she is into activating spaces in unique ways. Yes, where she's anti-frame sometimes. Yes. And she was just like, oh, darling, I said, let's take off those garish frames. And like getting away from that Renaissance Italian big gilded Da Vinci. And I think this is also a time and I, and, and you're you're talking about it right now. <laughs> it's because yeah. like modern frames hadn't really been invented yet. So she, it was either like this big gilded frame or and she was just like, well, this gilded is insanely gilded. And unless you're looking at just like the most pastoral landscape or like serious portraiture, like the gilded is kind of off for this like Kandinsky right. or this Miro. So like maybe let's ditch the frame because people had invented just like frame bridge ass frames. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, Peggy Guggenheim, clearly she is like the biggest now after reading this. I'm just like, I'm obsessed. You invented art. You invented downtown. Like you invented Bohemia. Like you are the it girl. Like you invented everything. And I'm just like, so you also invented like frame bridge and like light wood frames, but also just like she invented all those gallery shows I went to in college that were just people taking photos from a disposable camera and pinning it on the wall. Um, yeah, which is also just like everyone's bedroom, like circa they're 20 years old to like hopefully only 26, but then... <laughs> hopefully 26. Sometimes you see people in their 30s who are still being so like Polaroids as decor and it's just like, babe. But yeah, it's like move that to the frigidaire. Fr- fridge only for the photos. <laughs> okay. Move it to the Box, darling. <laughs> <laughs> we had elk and other sorts, so I just whipped up a fabulous meal and I put up Polaroids. <laughs> just to back up, so she's yeah, she's from the Upper East Side. Um, she is born wealthy. The Guggenheim family is a very wealthy Jewish mining family, and they have quite quite a bit of cash. And it is her her father. Yes, her father's the Guggenheim, and then her mother's family though is like more kind of more society famous. Yes, they're like two types of rich. And like they kind of look down on the Guggenheims because they're just like, oh God, they're like so uncultured. They're just these like brutish miners. Even though the Guggenheims were like maybe technically richer. Which is honestly such a thing. It's so like nouveau riche, just right. like, right. You can be like rich from like a lawn mowing company. Right, but and people just look like, down on you for having your just like... Big McMansion. Your landscape company. <laughs> or yeah, you're like, you're big. You like, you install kitchen islands for McMansions and like you have a lot of money, but the other families at the country club look down on you, darling. And so there's her father passes away on, you've heard of it, the Titanic. The Titanic. <laughs> so epic. It's so fucking epic. And she's describing her childhood and just like every page of this book completely insane. And she's just like, well, darling, I mean, of course, like I, I was madly in love with my piano teacher and then he died. And then Benita and I would steal from the local bookshop and she was dastardly in love with our cousin. But of course it wasn't possible until he did get married off to my other cousin. And then my father died in the Titanic along with several other prominent men of the day. And it affected me terribly, and I never recovered, and I wanted to kill myself. But it was the most wonderful year of my life. (laughs) Right, it's like, she is always being so depressed, but, like, I mean, I think this, you know, can happen a lot. Like, she seems so fabulous, so she's telling you she's depressed, and she's like, oh, and my second husband left me, and I've never been more depressed, but, like, darling, then I started a gallery, and, like, I was having so many friends over and traveling, and you're like, go off, bitch. It's very, like, no, it, there's something very human. The joy of life, you know? She, she, she really is a liver of life, because, there, yes, there are many times in this book where something horrible has happened, you know? So her second, like, great love, John Holmes, dies. Right. Tell me about this, because in the book, she goes from Lawrence Vale, her first husband, to Max Ernst, her second husband. I can't believe... John Holmes is, like, the most significant love of her life. And then she talks about Samuel Beckett and how he was like, I'm actually not in love There's with you. There's two quite great lovers that get just, like, quite a lot of treatment. So John Holmes was a writer who had writer's block. And this mm-hmm. whole... The entire book is just like, well, darling, he couldn't even write one poem. And they're always, like, finding a new house. He sounds very gay panic because it's like... She was just like, well, every summer we would spend half the summer simply looking for a house to summer in because John just had the most dastardly of tastes <laughs> and he was so specific and he simply was never happy. But then when we finally found a house, it was the most lovely home ever. We had a beautiful three weeks in Basque country. <laughs> 
And she's like talking about how they like live near Andorra or just like found a place in England or the south of France. And like they're always moving to some new fabulous home in Switzerland for a period of six months. And she'll just be like, and it was the most happiest time of our entire lives. And we held court every single night with all of Bohemia. But of course, John was terribly depressed and was prone to drinking. And I spent many nights crying alone after being beaten. And you're like, um, like, wait, so was it happy or sad? And you're like, but that's actually life. Well, and again, to quote Auntie Mame, one of the most famous quotes, life is a banquet. Most suckers are starving to death. And I think Pinky uh, Guggenheim really lives to that, you know? I and that, that. I, try to li- I try to live to that as well. No, I absolutely try to. And, you know, and I, and I, I, as I was going through it, I kept thinking there were times when I felt like, oh, God, you know, when I felt so small and like I had so much more to do and so much more to live. And I was, you know, we were wasting away our lives in front of the screens, you know? Mm. But then there were times where I was like, well, God damn it, I have lived a life, darling, and there's a lot more left in me. Absolutely. Well, because in the book, I wasn't really keeping track of how old she was, you know, where I was like, wait a second, are you, did like no one ever know? Yeah, I think A, no one ever knew. But that's another thing, because sometimes you're reading the book and I'm like, well, God damn it, I feel like such a fucking virgin because I feel like she's like slept with Duchamp and then slept with Beckett and then it's going back to John Holmes and then it's just like, going back and forth so much and I'm just like god damn it she's like you know she's been ran through by every goddamn surrealist in all of Europe but then I'm like maybe this was over a period of like three and a half years and there was just like a winter where like she didn't have sex for three months because it's just like well you could only contact people by letter like by ship so it was like gonna take a while anyway she also is always talking about how she's uh gets bored even though she seems to live the most fascinating life which I'm so I love that you know, in our hus- our hustle culture or something like that, like sh- the way she says bored seems fabulous. She's like, well, darling, I was bored. So I decided I need to make wooden boxes and I need to go to Indiana and I need to get a nose job. Okay. So she gets a nose job <laughs> and she goes to Indiana for an entire year. And then she goes, and darling, I took up gambling. I lost a fortune. (laughs) (laughs) She also says that she hated the new nose that she got. And she was like, and it was never the same. And darling, John called me pig nose, which we all found dreadfully hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it's like, I mean, not to spoil the segments, but I mean, I feel like you were so regretful after your non-cosmetic nose job. Thank you. I was regretful after my medically elective nasal procedure um, <laughs> that with, that did not change the outside because I thought it did work and it was like so painful and the recovery was so long. Ultimately, now I'm kind of like 50-50 on it because I do feel like I don't blow my nose anymore and I do feel a lot um, better. Yeah, I allergies. think you are clearer. But it did take a long time. Wait, so Do you think you took up gambling in the recovery? I mean, I did get really into the Property Brothers mobile game. There you go. Same in thing. In many ways is gambling. Okay, wait, so this is, so she's in Egypt, naturally. This is about her being bored. Okay. Once you get on the Nile, you must give up all sense of time. But I couldn't. I became so impatient that I almost went mad. Lawrence, this is her first husband, Lawrence. Lawrence spent hours below in a cabin writing a book. He had a Puritan conscience, and he was a writer. Sinbad and Lily, those are the children, were left behind in the hotel in Aswan at the first cataract. I got bored, and to amuse myself, I bought a pregnant goat. I'd hoped to see it give birth. However, it fooled me by choosing the one short hour I was absent, visiting some friends on a cook steamboat. <laughs> Just like, I'm sorry, she was bored, so she bought a pregnant goat, hoping to watch it give birth. And then it gave birth while she was on a cook's steamboat, trying to amuse herself for once. She also, okay, this is a theme throughout the book where she's constantly hoping to see animals give birth. Oh, well, okay. She is obsessed with her uh, type of terrier, which is a Lhasa or Lhasa terrier. And so she has like a bunch of them, but then she keeps like she's obsessed with them. So she breeds them, but then she realizes she's like inbreeding them. So she like goes on a search for more like outer, none of her Lhasa terriers. So just this one part shows. My two darling Lhasa terriers had mated with a gentleman dog, specially bought for this purpose from America by Mrs. Bernard Rice and had produced 57 puppies in my home. (laughs) About actually six remain in residence. Over the sofas, I placed a black and white striped fur rugs, which the dogs adored to lick. This was also very un-Venetian. And it's like, I'm guessing she is putting those rugs 
there so her terriers can lick them. But I'm also just like, I also feel like so many like La Hossa terriers are being born on this couch. And it's like <laughs> soaked with like La Hossa well, placenta. <laughs> she, I mean, I feel like rich people used to be so pets, I want to say. And like the Queen of England is still so dogs. But like in this way where now I think pets are much more of like a middle class pursuit. But it used to be like rich Paris like, Hilton but she, I, literally I, I, has nine chihuahuas and her whole thing is little pets she's one she's a very specific person and I she's into tiny little dogs like as an accessory doggy dogs as an accessory is a very post tabloid culture post 2009 thing which like, is like a rich girl thing so I actually think Paris Hilton one... having tiny dogs is descended from Peggy Guggenheim having ter- nine terriers running around Okay, you're right, and I am going to maybe concede this point on you. Okay, times have not changed, which people have always been very into, like, <laughs> having a million pets. Because <laughs> she constantly, when she lives at the house in, like, in south of France, where they live in this tiny little town, Dolly, and, oh. I, had, and I had to travel hours to get milk every day. She's also <laughs> so, like, me and Ridgewood, where it's just, like, there are days when she's like... Well, of course, I half the day was I went to go get milk and then I forgot the fish. So I went back out two hours later and the entire time her kids are with like various nannies and she's like, well, yeah, because she's always like, oh, my darling daughter Pagine. But you're like, (laughs) also sidebar, it's so insane to be Peggy and name your daughter Pagine. Pagine. And it's like, we never really know. (laughs) That's not. You named your daughter Lilene. Lilene. I'm like, where is Lilene? (laughs) Oh, she's at the Raftenbergs. Wonderful. Um. <laughs> but she's always, because then she has all these dogs at the South of France house. And then like, then they're making all like all these new dog babies and the dog babies are terrorizing the town. And darling, we all had a laugh about it. But of course, they, they, they nearly killed the local innkeeper when they attacked her while she was doing her morning waterings. Which, okay, the other reason why also like she is like beyond you one is, and I feel like she's having like one of her gatherings at Bohemia. And she's like, is telling this roaring story where she's like, Lele is flying in the air. And she's just like, and then I had to go back to the fish market. And they're all like, ah! <laughs> Wait, so you're saying when I'm in when I'm in Bohemia, my stories are just me getting caught. No, no, no. No, no, no. And, <laughs> and, and everyone's I'm, pretending to laugh as I'm holding court. <laughs> actually, that's incredibly not my point, but like. <laughs> It also can be is that like she's always talking about how like she was like I lived when I think she has the June gallery and she was like I was there constantly and if you have a gallery like she was being so like she boss and this is a business not a sorority and like I was there like 27 hours a day but then she's like and I could hardly leave to go to a dentist appointment or go to the oraculist, which I have no idea what the oraculist is. Well, at some point she was like, I finally fell out of love with Samuel Beckett after visiting a fortune teller. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. We, don't, we need to get to that part. But so then she's like, and of course, when I was at the oraculist, it's like when this like buyer came by or like some important person and they then they like started rumors that she was never at her gallery. And okay. she was like, here's the thing about her gallery work where it's like she's talking about it where I'm just like if this were modern times and this goes back to I think Peggy really would have loved the modern era (laughs) because just like she could have not been bored because she would have had a phone but like she's always just like well there's nothing like getting ready for a gallery opening. It takes months. You have to <laughs> compile a list of everyone that you're going to invite to the opening. You have to write a catalog. And like writing the catalog of just like literally listing the works is always this project that takes like six months. She's employing like 17 of her like closest friends who know the artists. And it's just like this kind of work that I just feel like nowadays is very like being done in a, by a gallery girl, by but a I, gallery girl where you just like have the artist bio and then you're like, this is the list of the works. Did you read the part where she in Italy, she writes a gallery like intro or whatever to her book or catalog and it gets translated into Italian. She goes to like the small gallery bookstore or whatever. And it's like, okay, she goes to the very like masked books or whatever, like (laughs) where it's being. And she goes, it was the most horrible thing I had ever read because the translation was so bad. So she just like weeps and weeps for hours (laughs) at the translation. <laughs> no, it, it you know it it reminds you to like you know sometimes it's okay to sort of luxuriate in these things like yes you know, sob at the translation sob at the translation like spend three weeks writing a paragraph long artist bio like I mean that's so me being like 
about like a comedy show being like, uh, just send us an about me three sentences and maybe like sitting down being like, Lily is and you're like do i put a hilarious joke here or are we serious and you're like lily is a uh, um loves lobster lily has performed at moma right, and then you're like, you're like do lily, i do delete, serious delete. credits do i do joke credits and then the day is done and then you have to go to the dentist and we are all Becky. <laughs> celebrity book club this episode is sponsored by zocdoc You're trying to find a cause for your symptoms. Achy back, headache, runny nose, itchy eye, wart on my genitals. So let me guess, you stumble down a TikTok rabbit hole full of questionable advice from so-called experts. Suddenly I have cancer? Uh, no thank you. (laughs) There are better ways to get the answers you want and the care you deserve from trusted professionals and not random people on the internet. Though randoms, I love you, and my TikTok addiction, yeah, it stands. But I'm sorry, Lily, you shouldn't be getting medical advice from some girl in her grandmother's basement in Toronto. ZocDoc helps you find expert doctors and medical professionals that specialize in the care you need and deliver the type of experience you want. That's right. Ditch the talk, get the doc. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. No more doctor roulette or scouring the internet for questionable reviews. With ZocDoc, you have a trusted guide to connect you to your favorite doctor you haven't met yet. Mm, I love a trusted guide, like the time I climbed to Machu Picchu on the Inca Trail with a team of Sherpas. Millions of people use ZocDoc's free app to find and book a doctor in their neighborhood who is patient-reviewed and fits their needs and schedule just right. So find your Sherpa at ZocDoc.com. Go to ZocDoc.com slash book club and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find NBook, a top-rated doctor today. Slay. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash book club. ZocDoc.com slash book club. Ditch the talk. Okay, let's... We, let's go through her... Ma- so, okay, so Lawrence Vale is her first husband. Right. Um, and then she's with this guy, John Holmes, who dies very tragically. Um, he's thrown from a horse, of course, uh, at their English home one summer. And then for three years, his wrist is broken and it's quite painful for him. And so he finally concedes to get this operation done at their home in Paris. And he dies while under anesthesia. And she's like, darling, and of course it was the king's anesthetist. <laughs> And this is why I'm so afraid of anesthesia. Like, no, it's same. us. And But I do think, like, med- medicine at this time was just, like, not well, Yeah, it was going to go ahead and be, like, the thirties. And it was, it's sounding so, like, the 30s, but also, like, they're just on this weird cusp before modern medicine, where it's, like, x-rays are happening. So, like, they are doing surgeries, but it's, like, they're just doing them kind of badly. Yeah, and, like, before they were just, like, giving in, like, Western times, like, cowboys were so, like give them, you know, a bottle of whiskey and pass out. And now they're like, we've created anesthetics. Right. And then there's like killing someone. And then they're just fully killing someone. And like, and she real, and she was like, and of course they all knew that they'd killed him. And like, <laughs> and then she could tell that all the doctors are so nervous that she's going to go just like full medical malpractice suit on them. <laughs> and they're being like, um, he actually was like a total alcoholic and like his system was like bad or whatever, like, which is I'm sure true. <gasps> Right, which... And it sounds like she wasn't being so grudge and insane. And, like, even though she's American, she's not, like, so litigious. And I do respect that about her. She's American, but she likes Europe better than America. Like, she does come back to the U.S. after the phony war. Um, At first, she calls World War II the phony war. But then when, like, all of her, like, friend Bohemian Realist painters, like, are getting put in concentration camps, she's just like, oh, the war was awful. (laughs) 
I mean, yeah, she's running around France at the beginning of the war, and she's just like, and she keeps like trying to put on a gallery show, like as the <laughs> That's war what I was is starting. Obsessed with, I was like, because you're like, and she is just like, well, okay, so I shipped all of Max Ernst's paintings, and then I shipped a Kandinsky, and at that time, I mean, my Pollocks came through, but they got stuck in customs in Italy. Don't ever send anything through Italy. And she was literally full key trying to like put on a gallery show in Paris and then being like, uh, and then she's like at a cafe at one point with like Duchamp or like Beckett or someone. And she was like, and they were like bombing the outer suburbs of Paris. And she was just being like, Oh God, what's that dreadful racket? And (laughs) and she was like, and I was still going back to the kitchen to fetch more wine. (laughs) And so then eventually she's just like, okay, we have to get out. And so there's this point where everyone is like fleeing Paris and everyone's like, the roads are packed on. And she was like, it was wonderful because they were barely checking anyone's passports. (laughs) Because everyone was fleeing. And she was like, well, all these fools were going west because they thought the Germans were coming from the east. And everyone said, oh, you're going to run into the Italian army. I said, oh, darling, I doubt it. And so then she's just like fleeing to like this random village where she is for a while. And then they go to Marseille and then they take a boat to Lisbon. But she's being very just like, I don't not... know. I'm also just, okay, she's here's scared. a theory. Point like where she gets scared. I mean, yes, she's rich. I think that's the theory. Yes, she is rich. I guess I'm like in this like but COVID Jewish, way of so how people would... got like rapids, rich, like the Illuminati got rapids earlier. Like right. I was like, was she getting such like tea from Julia Child who was a spy? And she was like, Peggy, you must go west. <laughs> pack, pack, pack the Pollocks. <laughs> pack the Pollocks. <laughs> and she's like, darling, thank you. By the way, that duck recipe was phenomenal. And was it Armagnac you used? I must get a bottle of that. This okay. fan fiction between yeah. Peggy and Julia. I think that's fully true. Julia was sending her a cable, darling, a telegram. <laughs> And she said, you must get out of Paris and ship the paintings. Because there's one scene in Marseille where, the, where like some police come, some gendarmes come. And then she was like, and they asked me if I was Jewish. And I said, no, darling, I'm American. And she was like, <laughs> and of course I was terrified that they were going to ship me off to one of these dreadful camps. But then they don't ship her up to a camp. Also, Max Ernst was like a camp survivor. I, that insane. part was insane. So Max Ernst, who I did look up, who is a surrealist painter. Right, we'll talk about surrealism in a minute. But then I love the part where she was like, and whenever he would meet someone from the camps, they would talk about it as if they were, <laughs> they had all been to the same vacation town. Like, no, I like know. She was, like je- <laughs> she was jealous. And she's like, so, and she was, it was actually crazy when being back in America and she's like, and we're going to gallery to gallery and they're like going to so many restaurants and it's like this total like return for her and she's like rocking around with her new husband Max Ernst and she's like it was amazing to go with someone everyone recognized and like she's feeling so like famous and everyone from the concentration camps is being so like what is up and she's like jealous that they're and all she's like, just flawed. like okay not she'd be like oh not you guys all in como together and he's yeah. being so like uh okay saw you at Auschwitz <laughs> Let's get into surrealism. Sorry, I'm like not into it. Not into it. Okay, surrealism. And I've never been into surrealism. Okay, surrealism to me, yes, I know it's like from the 20s or whatever. It's the most like... And it was like rocking then, like the world. No, and it blew their minds. To me, it's it's so straight guy being like, whoa, trippy, Yeah, it's like the invention of like Grateful Dead art. Yes. It's the, to me, it's like, it's so nine, like a guy in the whatever, like a modern guy having like a 70s poster being like, fuck man, this is so crazy. It's it's like, it's like a girl, but her face is a tree. No, it's a 90s guy (laughs) into the 60s. It's that, it's the store shop therapy in Provincetown. Like it's any head shop. Like it's bold. It's 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 literally bold. It's like, like, well, like a chick's legs are spread, but like her pussy's a waterfall. It's like a staircase made out of suitcases. It's just like- It's like a camel is giving birth to a dude. <laughs> it's just like, congrats on being trippy. And it's like, she's obsessed with surrealism and all these just. Well, like, darling, weren't they all smoking opium? Oh, honey, if they were smoking whatever they could get their hands on. <laughs> so, one of her biggest regrets um, is just like, so she 
quote unquote discovers Pollock and then he like really disses her in his later career and there's like all this writing and like she's never mentioned and she's so pissed and like she's been flying Pollocks around from Europe to America Europe to America like for years darling and putting him to gallery and she gave in her gallery at one point she gives up like selling work of all other artists to just focus on Pollock because she's like so obsessed and then he like doesn't mention her at all except then when Pollock dies his like agent or whatever calls her and is like you have to be the one to tell his wife and so they come so obviously she was very close yeah and even though how fab is this that like three days before Jackson Pollock dies his wife comes to Venice and calls her up and is like darling where should I stay in Venice and she goes darling Venice is full up <laughs> we're full. The position is full. Just Dolly, there's full. not a room. Like no Airbnbs here, um, because she was so hurt, and she regrets. Like, and she was like selling and giving away so many Pollocks, and then of course, the work really became worth something. Yeah. But she's also she's regrets it, but also it seems like she's moved on <laughs> in a way. I mean, and you know, but this I'm sure maybe deep down it really does hurt her. I think it really does. And also, because she is, you know, obviously she is an heiress, but is probably like, wait, what the actual fuck? I gave away like so many paintings there and was sold a- them for like $10,000. Um, wait, so speaking of toxic surrealists, so I want to <laughs> talk about the scene. Was there at one point she's having an affair with Yves Tang- Tangyi, Tangyi, Oh, tan-, tan guy? Yes. Okay. That reminds me of something else toxic. You do yours. And... and- She's spending this week where she knows the wife is in Paris and like mm-hmm. she's also in Paris. And so she's really trying to pick her cafes carefully so she doesn't run into the wife. Same. <laughs> she ends up going to this cafe. And of course, Eve and his wife are there. And Classic. then she's there with her friend. And then the friend is like, oh, just go over and say hi. And so she goes over and the wife throws a fish at her. <laughs> just like <laughs> such a like full like i don't know there's like like lemon slices on the fish and it's just like she's in the heart of bohemia running in to the lover's lover and she has a row with her and i'm just like to throw a fish at someone to throw a fish at someone well it made me this was a little very me last week and i was Mm. at a bar in the heart of bohemia (laughs) (laughs) And a painter walked in. Mm. A certain painter that my ex-boyfriend may have left before. And it was so just like, oh, dear Lord. Like, however shall this go down? And like a friend of mine was just like, well, how are you standing here, darling? And I was just like, how am I indeed? And I was like, do I throw the fish? Do I go over and throw a martini in his face? Well, and here's another thing, which is very... um very Peggy, I was like, if I throw a martini in his face on, the bartender's simply going to hate me. I have a good relationship with the barman. Uh, and then um, I certainly, I won't be allowed back in the bar and I've caused a scene and a row and everyone will be upset. Exactly. Who loses there? The bar. And then you can't go to one of the best cafes in Bohemia. That's actually so respectable of you. Well, and this happened... And, like, Lawrence, like, literally got arrested at one point for, like, throwing a bottle at some guy that Peggy had had an affair with at a cafe in Montparnasse. And then he, like, couldn't go back to the restaurant. So I was very just kind of like, well, I need to kind of, like, at least keep up appearances in Bohemia. (laughs) I mean, the wife threw the fish, but it's, you know, I mean, can you imagine that cleanup, darling? Well, if it was just one solid fish. Not pieces. A flaky (laughs) white fish. (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't like a big Alaskan crab leg like covered in garlic butter. <laughs> I imagine just like so much oil. So much old bay all over the sky. That, that is so Peggy, but it's like, right. It's like, I don't think Peggy would have done that because it's like, like she is a little bit mismanners. And so that's why you are the Peggy. And like, I think it's good that you didn't throw the martini. And again, also, darling, we're in the Great Depression. Or the Great Depression is about to happen. That's a waste of $14. <laughs> No, certainly it wasn't going to waste good. Throw time. his martini at him. Exactly. And, you know, ultimately, I, I left with my head held high. Wonderful. And there's no greater victory. Absolutely no greater victory than leaving Bohemia with your head still in the air and going to be able to go to every cafe you damn well please. Exactly. Okay, speaking of Bohemia, I want to talk about just this little fashion moment um, of another one of her toxic surrealist husbands, Max Ernst. Oh, and it's Marseille stuff. Okay. 
Max loved to wear fantastic clothes. In Europe, he always wore a black cape, which was very romantic and suited him perfectly. In Marseille once, when I was buying a little sheepskin jacket, Max was so jealous that I had to order one for him as well. The furrier was very surprised, but he made it, and when Max wore it, he looked like a Slav, Prince. <laughs> I also gave him my mother's long gown, which made him look very aristocratic. <laughs> and it's yeah, I mean, like, is Max Ernst by? Well, she describes a lot of the men she likes as having like fabulous style in this way that is kind of like fagalacious. But also like back then men really dressed up. She was like, Lawrence always wanted to wear patterned pants. Like he sounds like he's being really, really like new gossip girl. Just always wearing like high-waisted, <laughs> like plaid or... flared pants. And she was always like, Lawrence was the first man I ever met who didn't wear a hat. Which was like insanely revolutionary of him. Right, he's not like in a suit and a fedora. He's in like patchwork plaid. Which and is ironic clothes. because I feel like nowadays it's more bohemia to wear a hat and it's actually less bohemia to not wear a hat. Um, a couple other quotes I really love. She's talking about um, one of her friends, Nellie. <laughs> Nellie von Dosberg. <laughs> Nellie was my newest friend and I did not know her very well at this period. About a year before, she'd walked into my gallery and given me a long lecture on who her husband had been and who she was. I was not in the least impressed and thought she was funny. I allowed her little by little to force her way into my life. I don't like women very much and <laughs> usually prefer to be with homosexuals, if not with men. <laughs> I just... I really love that she makes a distinction between homosexuals and men. Because, darling, she's dead right. She's literally dead right. Where she's just like, I'm not hanging out with like toxic Jackson Pollock painters. Like, I'm hanging with homosexuals. The, the next line is, women are so boring. Anyway, I asked Nellie. She always says anyway, too. She's like, darling, then my father died in the Titanic. Anyway, I bought 17 paintings. So freaking iconic, Peggy. She's such a casual fag hag in this way where she's not actually a fag hag because she's not so like desperate to hang out with gay men. She is the best kind of fag hag because I'm sure there were like other society women who were more like having one husband that was an alcoholic and like beating them like after like a gin feast and then was like, well, and I had my like gaggle of like surrealist and society gays. Yeah, she doesn't need to run to her gaggle after she gets beat at a, at a gin down in Barcelona. She <laughs> just like has a, an occasional gay here and there. And you can tell because the way she'll be like, oh, he was a pansy or just like, yeah. oh, there was there was a soft boy at this random village we were living in for six months. It was dreadful. It was the worst time of my life, but I've never been happier. So I read that it's like she it says she slept with over 1000 men, darling. Yeah. I mean, what's and what's your number again? <laughs> oh, that's for Patreon, babe. <laughs> in the VIP lounge, we will reveal Lily's number. <laughs> yes. Let's get a few more sign-ups and I will reveal my number. <laughs> I wonder if that number means full penetration. Oh, of a thousand? I feel like no, because I also feel like it's like was so opium den and like people are falling asleep and like it's in a carriage maybe and like some on like a cross Atlantic flight ship. You know, I also but here's the thing. I just I just feel like back then, like sex was penetration or get out like it was all the way or nothing like people weren't being so like weird, like side saddle hand jobs. Like it wasn't just like and then darling, he rimmed me and we fell asleep okay. like honestly, I think Peggy is so hand job. Like I feel like she was in the back of the cafe and she was like, and so what? I gave Duchamp a hand job because I said, let's get going. We have another gallery to go to. Well, she never the word hand job does not appear in this book. I really think that back then it was like you pull up your petticoats, you have an 11 second penetration and you're just like, darling, it was wonderful. And then we did it again an hour later at a different hotel. Okay, can we get an extremely old person on the pod to tell us if hand jobs happen then? Were there hand jobs in the 30s? Please sound off. Yes, okay. Well, you are right because you know how like, hello, like it's so history of sex museum where like doctors fingered women to make them come so they would like stop being hysterical because like no woman had ever come before. Oh, that's like all the porn I watch. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, back to our like trippy anti earnest stuff. I mean, not Ernest stuff, Surrealist stuff. When she she's <laughs> mad at Max Ernst. 
for never painting her, which is rude. And he's always a painting oh, agreed. other chicks. Agreed. As someone who has been amused several times, not being amused is the worst. What's also the point of marrying like an alcoholic artist if they're not going to like write a song or paint you or sculpture? Paint you. Yeah. yeah. She also says that she way prefers sculpture over painting, which personally I disagree with. But that's, I mean, that's also a rich person thing to be so bust. Yeah, it's, it's like, like, well, like, I yeah. Where am I maybe, putting a bust? I don't know. Maybe, right. It's like, if I, I guess I am so cool object. So one of my, I love dolls. Yeah, what? Maybe yeah, I am you so literally sculpture. literally have a doll collection. Okay, so what, here she goes when he finally paints her. And this honestly seems like a weird offensive painting. This doesn't seem flattering. But one day when I went into his studio, I had a great shock. There on his easel was a little painting I had never seen before. In it was portrayed a strange figure with the head of a horse. It was Max's own head with the body of a man dressed in shining armor. Facing this strange creature with her hands between his legs was a portrait of me, but not of me as Max had ever seen me. It was my face at the age of eight. I have photographed myself at this age, and lightness is unquestionable. I burst into tears and told Max he had at last painted my portrait. He was rather surprised they'd never seen the photos because my head was placed where it was and because it was between two spears. I named the painting Mystic Marriage. <laughs> and she like, loves this, like, twisted. And it's like, sounds like he's being like, I've actually never seen you as a child. Like, I never saw your TBDs. Um, well, then there's also. Yves Tangui like does some surrealist painting that just like looks like a broom like out of coming out of a vase or whatever and she's just like it looks like me please call it me and he was like okay fine this is a portrait of Peggy Guggenheim <laughs> like I feel like maybe I mean this gets back to her hotness where it's a little bit just like she's not really hot but right she is X Factor she's got X Factor so I feel like that's why like everyone's banging her but like no one's painting her I mean I didn't want to say it but yeah, absolutely. It's that's true. Of, and I think I think it's that's the bohemian good... version of always a bridesmaid, never a bride, you know. Drop my Kindle. Um, we should probably get into segments, darling, as I have a gallery show to get to. Do I have to run to an opening? Let's do segments. An exhibition, An exhibition of, of contemporary, contemporary segments. segments. <laughs> Well, we're close. All right. What does she wear? How does she eat? What does she live? How does she live? How does one live? What does she wear? I mean, she wears the fashions of the times. Right. But it, it, she's wearing these like longer dresses. Um, but then, oh, oh right, this part was amazing. Swathed when, in fabric. Swathed in fabrics. And she's always get, as a, getting things in her travels. You know what I mean? She's getting a, a gorgeous sheepskin fur from a furrier in Marseille. But then she's going to Arabia and yeah. is like, getting there so there's a gallery okay, show she talks about well I, my favorite is when she talks about shopping in cairo how it takes weeks to buy something because you're haggling with the merchants for literally weeks on end and you and you have to play it so cool and like go back to the merchant the next day and just be like darling i absolutely shan't pay you 600 greek francs for this earring and he's like no come back come back come back and then the next day she's like fine i will pay this okay so she's is up Seussed with earrings and at one point she has a big gala she wears one earring by one surrealist maker and then another like earring by like a cubist or something like that <laughs> and then she's like and that was to signal to everyone that i was bipartisan between the surrealists and the abstract expressionists or wow. the wow wow to imagine that your earring choice could rock a gala like that yeah to sort of be the, the, she was the Switzerland, if you will, of the opening. So, in a way, she is like funky Cambridge mom earrings. If she's wearing these like chunky wooden, like surrealist earrings. It's about like embellishment, you know? And I think this was like true for just like rich women for a very, very long time. I would say until like, up until Jill Sander, up until like, you know, until Eileen Fisher, up until like the influence of more Japanese Plain. minimalist design. 
minimalist in, in women's wear tones, and yes. western women's wear like i would say like the tradition has always been like you know brocade and, and embroidery and like brooches and, and, and furs and like a mix of a lot of like definitely jewelry from like north africa and arabia and like she loves like southwestern jewelry and south american jewelry and like accessories from everywhere Right. Silks from India, silks from Japan. It's yeah. like the style of a woman who travels. Absolutely. And I and I and like and you know, there are still women to this day, if you go to the you know, the Met Opera, or whatever, are still like swathed and Right. So it's like, well, and then someone's like, Oh, where'd you get yeah. that? And she's like, Oh, well, me and Max, we we took a cross trip if I may, to Yes. If I may. Okay, so one thing that I've always noticed, like, rich women going in opera are always a little bit, like, want to wear something, like, a little bit Asian in this way, where it, like, doesn't have, like, buttons on the front or something, or, like, you know, some, some like, reference to a traditional cheap power, like, some sort of kimono-like dress. Yes. I feel like it's very popular at, like, an expensive, like... Huge scarf. Yeah, East Coast kimono. white woman gala. I feel like she is maybe not as that, and she's a little bit more just like Chanel. Flapper. She's a little more cinched, cinched flapper. I think like those come off in the earrings. I also feel like she is. I know it's the time she is wearing like longer pieces. She's wearing longer pieces. She's also very custom. Everything feels custom. Everything is like a maker. Like I went to a furrier. Like and like she always talked about Lawrence would like bring very unique fabrics to these menswear designers in Savile Row, and they would be shocked. They'd be like, "What? Where did you get this? A man wants to make pants out of this (laughs) clown material, out of some like shiny clown fabric." And like when the um. What do you call it? When then her Marseille furrier was also shocked that like her other husband, Max Ernst, wanted to wear a vest. So it's like, I just feel like her husbands are inspired by her, which is more style of the day. And her husbands look funkier because they're doing it in a menswear way. And people are a little more shocked. Multiple husbands, she says, like thought that she was like, had bad style. So <laughs> she'll be like, Lawrence always thought that like I didn't dress up enough and I was like a total slob and I needed to like wear more clothing. And like also John Holmes thought that too. <laughs> and like all these guys are just like literally like kick it up a notch, Peggy. Here's the thing because I actually don't think she was being flapper dress. Like I feel like she was wearing like this like longer dress and weird wooden earrings. You know what I mean? And then they were like, oh, there's oh, these other hotties were flappers. Well, John, I believe, or maybe it was Lawrence, made her get a flapper dress made by this French designer that was like one of the hottest designers in Paris in the 20s when they used to throw parties for all of Bohemia. Uh-huh. And was like, you actually need to go get like this. Like he basically was just like, you have to get your ass to Rachel Comey right now to get this dress if we're going to entertain at my house. Like, I don't want to see you not in the Comey of the day. So I guess she is, she's fashion, but she's not. She's of the time, but she's like but a little bit not. lazy about it. Right, and there's he, like he's probably seeing all these like maybe I guess, more okay. conventionally attractive girls. Here's, here's the more serious question. Part of me feels like she would find deplorable like the yoga pant style of today. And she'd be like, yes. people simply don't get dressed anymore. Ugh, I don't know, but. But then I'm like, maybe she would be so like cashmere sweatpants. I think, yes, she would, like, find, like, yoga pants. Like, she wouldn't wear that to a gallery. But I feel like she would be, like, living in an insane cashmere sweatpants set. You know, around the house. Or would she still just be more like, these are my custom Tibetan silk pants and just be more Cambridge mom? Yeah, ladder. Or, like, so Issy Miyake, like, full head-to-toe Issy gallery opening, I'm a fabulous woman of a certain age. Yeah, I feel like she'd be in... I think it's honestly a combo. Like she would have a pair of like maybe just like a tan cashmere pant that she would travel in, but then she'd be walking around the house in her like Tibetan silks that Pegeen had bought her and she had them into pants. And then it'd be like big issy pleated. She'd be like, my daughter bought me these pants on her honeymoon. She's dead now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What does she eat? What does she eat? I don't know. She like never mentions food. She does talk several times where she was like, I'd lost so much weight. Everyone thought I was wasting away. I want to say there's a time where she's like talking about a veal. 
she ta- but, there's time when she talks about how she ate nothing but lamb because like the cooks forced her to eat lamb and then she was <laughs> yeah. like then the gardener Jonathan raised this pig and they absolutely adored this pig and it was terrible to have to eat its bacon and then she's like she talks about how they're like so we killed this this one of our best friends this poor little pig but then all the meat turned green on the train to Paris <laughs> so it's just like okay so you killed your like family's family pig and then didn't even eat the meat. I feel like there's a lot of time where she references not eating. Yeah, I think honestly, it's like more like she is like being fabulous and like she's like is definitely drinking, but I also think these things she's doing where she's like is being more celebrity and like drinking less than others because she's yes. seeing all these like guys yes. were so wasted. And yes. it's like your memory's actually popping. I feel like you're yeah. having more of a like vermouth with soda. Yes. No, she and is just, Beyonce slow sipping the Cosmo over the course of three hours as Duchamp is just like blackout. And then there's like a huge cassoulet and there's a fish and she's like having a bite of it. Like she would definitely be more like vegetarian or like, I don't eat red meat. Like I think she would be vegetarian in this day. She's, but she's more like even just Didion and like forgetting to eat entirely. Yeah. Like it's there and she's like, Oh, the spread was wonderful. Figs, lamb, fish. And that is just kind of talking. Yes, she's talking. She's holding court. She's having one bite of a, of a pigeon cassoulet. Done. <laughs> How does she live, darling? Darling, as fabulously as possible, taking in everything. I mean, as we said, it's like it is. I feel like at times it's more fabulous than others, and sometimes maybe it does get a little great gardens with all of her like wooden dolls in storage. There's so many dolls in storage. I like the part when she's living in the cottage. That um, that Gramon has renovated generously that they're living in in England, and she describes it as being terribly cold, except for the one room with a stove so large you can sit inside. And it's like this old-fashioned cottage. And she's like, at one point he renovated it, but like somehow like renovated it so that she couldn't get her like massive costume chest out. And I'm just picturing this like massive like steamer oh my trunk God. that's like yeah, so very like gold plated and like, so huge. Mickey Blanco like in college like had this huge steam trunk (laughs) like costume that but like like, five times bigger and it's full of so many scarves and flapper hats (laughs) and like headbands and like her daughters and like her ex's new wife's daughter are playing dress up with it but it's just so large like I just it's also Bethany in this way where it's like she just has this weird one bedroom and like the upper east side and and like with so much costume chest and but it's like she's always waiting for the bigger fabulous house but is most of her time in some other place that's weird and smaller she's in a weird spot okay because she's constantly moving is the thing she's always in some location for eight months and like half the time she's in a house that she's like rented from a friend she's setting it up with all her furniture that she's taken out of storage that was in like smuggled in customs and is like waiting for her in andorra so it's like i think i feel like it's actually quite chaotic and the way she lives is just like there are tons of steamer trunks and boxes and clothes being unloaded and there's a point later and i think that speaks to this in the book which she's talking about her venetian because she lives in venice for the rest of her life that's where her collection is where she talks about the couches being covered in plastic which is so actually like the house Brittany murphy died in and it's like actually kind of creepy and fully hoarder also is it very rich this is a rich person to do again small dog rich person thing to yes. do where they have so much staff and so much going on that like the little dogs are like shitting and pissing inside yes. and like they're not the going gardens. for a formal yeah. walk yeah and it's just like there are shit lounges that are getting like covered by the hospitality or shit i know so it's like so i basically i feel like we're saying that she's very not like the way that we think of like say a miami collector today who i feel like has such a modern design house that's like so clean and like maybe has chargers everywhere in the dining room but like mostly (laughs) it's just like empty i think it's like like dark and it's like tons of paintings tons of furs tons of silks it's not so creepy in this way but like yeah she could use half of the rooms are like two single beds pushed together like she's (laughs) sharing she's sharing a bed for a week with like her cousin's sister's new husband and like the kids well, always walking in on them. And then sometimes she'll be like time at her Venetian house and be like, oh, it was so un-Venetian of me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but she loves a garden. Yeah, she had this gorgeous garden. So I think some parts of the house are like gorgeously manicured. 
I do like when she talks and she is being so aware and so woke at the beginning when she's talking about how the servants quarters at her childhood home was like gross. And she's be like, I went up there was literally terribly cramped and crowded. And like the lighting Mm. was awful. And just like, they had to climb over like so many ladders to get into their bedrooms. I felt terrible. No, and that's why she trains her gondoliers to be art handlers. Right, because she wants them to have <laughs> room good to advance in their career, darling. Um, which brings us to... Who are you in the book? Who are you in the book? I mean, the ways in which you're Peggy, it's madness. I know, but I really do hope that I am. I mean, I aspire to be her more I think than I am. Keep on reading this. Keep on being more keep on, yes. Peggy. Push to be your own Peggy, I think. Yeah, because sometimes you know, I I I have all these fears that oh god, I'm not living enough, I'm not going out there enough, I'm not just saying fuck it, and you know, and just like, and just having the affair, right? I'm too afraid, but you really just have to go forth and have the affair. It's mostly affair based, right. is what I'm because she's with. also is like sobbing sometimes in a room that like her like trippy male painter boyfriend isn't painting her, and it's just like, well, yeah, that's sad. Yeah. <laughs> But sometimes then she's like also at a furrier. Or but it's like also like, feel the pain and feel the sadness. And then like go to the dentist and spend the day going to the dentist. Yeah, I also do wish that I just had a little bit, my inheritance was a little bit larger. But I mean, <laughs> same. <laughs> In the sense where I just like truly for absolute decades on never even had to consider making an income. And there was just always so much more money available and just always so many more trusts. And I could always just be like, and I'm supporting like 10 different artists while also opening museums. But at the same time, she, here's what's crazy is like, she does kind of, I feel like go broke sometimes. And she is always like bargaining. Like she's like, my financial art advisor told me to like bargain this painting for this. Cause I was like cash poor. So she is a lot of the times cash poor. But then it's like one of her many uncles just like move some of the trust around and then she's fine. Yeah. She also is being like fake heiress where she's like, I literally have no cash. I literally have no cash. So you, when you don't go to the ATM and you're like, wait, I have no cash. I have literally no (laughs) cash right now. Well, because her, the whole thing is that like her father like didn't get as much money as the uncles in like a big upset. Right, because he hadn't like signed over his will before he went on the Titanic or something. Yeah, and then at the end of the book, she was like, and that was the only time ever she does like some art deal that I didn't regret, like my dad losing his fortune. So I think for her entire life, she was still just like, what the fuck? My, my cousin. So my cousin's yeah. way richer than me. Yes. And like she is regretting like but selling the But if she had product. been even richer, I think that she wouldn't have had the motivation to just like exactly. be in Bohemia and like start so many galleries and she would have just been too comfortable. It's all about being a middle heiress. Yes. <laughs> Which is why you should be happy with your inheritance. Because you're a middle heiress. I was also worried that I was like John Holmes in this way where I'm like, oh my God, I've had writer's block for five years and then I die in like surgery. <laughs> <laughs> And you're staring at the painting. And I'm staring at the painting and I'm just like, and I've never written my magnum opus and now I'm dead. Well, don't go under anesthesia in Before the 30s. I've written. Okay, I I mean, I feel like parts of me are also Peggy. Like, I feel like I am holding court in Bohemia. Oh, absolutely. I feel like I'm less of a gallery girl. Yeah, I guess I'm like, I'm a mix between Peggy and Mondrian. <laughs> Because he once asks her at 66 where the nightclub is. And honey, at 60, you're still going to be dancing. I'm still going, darling. Um, I mean, you're also Peggy because you are a hoarder in this way. You're Peggy, but you're also John Holmes. Her second, which I'm also worried that I am because they loved records. And Ramon built in their English cottage a whole section for all her record collection. Oh, and, and he's being like built in. Yeah, they did like section. they did a gorgeous built in. And it was like... <laughs> no, and I'm pegging this way also because I think right my style is going to be like. Well, I went to the Southwest and now I'm a cowboy. Like, and, like... I think I'm more Peggy in my affairs, but you're more Peggy and like yes. your collectoring because it's like I'm a little bit more minimalist and you're a little bit more like all the dolls, all the vintage signs, yes. all the <laughs> records, just like. And your house is a museum. 
Yeah, and I'm still like finding a weird drawing at a thrift store being like, okay, right. outsider art, I'm collecting. Okay, done. And between the two of us, we make one Peggy Guggenheim at 4.0 yes. manscape balls. <laughs> <laughs> um, I absolutely give this book 10 out of 10 Miro gorgeous paintings that I got uh, for a steal, darling. Darling, I give my abridged book 10 <laughs> out of 10 Joseph Cornell conceptual boxes, which we didn't even talk about how that was like such a assignment for me at my conceptual high high school where we like had to make box art inspired oh, by Joseph Cornell. It was like you had to hide a secret, right? It was like one we had to like have a secret, but another one was like, no, you had to like create a box. So you're, it's kind of like a diorama, but it's a little more like box art. It's a whole thing. Okay, inventing boxes. Um, I, I would, I would just to our readers, if you to our readers, to our listeners, if you want to listen to this book, if you want to read this book, please read out of this century the non-abridged version. Like the book should be four hundred pages because it is a lot juicier than yeah, the like quietly abridged version. All right. Absolutely read this book. Um, you guys, thank you so much for listening to another amazing episode of CBC The Pod. Um, we encourage you to sign up for our Patreon where you can get into the VIP lounge. This week we are discussing Hunter Biden's art career and his new opening at a gallery in Soho. And we are also discussing the new hit lesbian reality show, Tampa Bay's. So, yeah. Hop in or sign up and hop in. Yeah. So, yeah, you can peace out now if you're done. But if you want that scintillating cultural conversation, go to patreon.com slash CBC the pod and sign the F up. Um, and next week, we will be reading. Yeah. Let's get a little more manly. Um, we're doing awesome actor and ceramicist Seth Rogen's book, Yearbook. Fuck yeah. I, there's nothing I love more than weed, men, and hanging out. <laughs> and those are what I associate with Seth Rogen. So light up a doobie and we'll see you in the bong room. <laughs> it's a great transition from like surrealist male art to like the, yeah. the ultimate fucking dude. The ultimate dude. surrealist <laughs> Seth Rogen. Uh, Alright, best. Best. Celebrity Book Club is presented by Prologue Projects. We could never agree on a contract, and it killed me to this day. The show was produced by Meg Manane, who had a, who had large shoulders and a tiny waist, and all the men adored her. And it made me terribly jealous. With editorial support from Neon Napok, who was about seven feet tall and had a bird-like nose, and of course, all the women were mad about him too. For some reason, I was never attracted to him, and it killed him. Andrew Parsons, with whom I went to bed with several times during the war. It was a war thing, darling, and that was that. And of course, Madeline Kaplan. Madeline was always terribly jealous of my relationship with Leon. I think it killed her that he saw me as worldly and intellectual, and he thought she was a simple girl from Cannes. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, another simple girl from Cannes, although I must say her Italian was better than mine. Original theme song by Stephen Phillips Horse. It, it was, in fact, the only song he ever wrote. And he always managed to bring it up at parties. Artwork by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. I was an early collector of his. And I must say, I believed in him when no one else did. Of course, then years later, he was the talk of the town before he killed himself in 1942. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at First, first listen. listen. 
This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.